The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gildas Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. There's a, a quote, rightly or wrongly attributed to Winston Churchill that says, courage is what it takes to stand up and speak. Courage is also what it takes to sit down and listen. This is certainly a situation that plays out daily in doctors' offices as patients and doctors meet to discuss the patient's health and wellness. Our guest today brings special insight on this topic, having recently written the book, What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear. Dr. Danielle Ofri is a physician at Bellevue Hospital and associate professor of medicine at New York University. Dr. Ofri's lectures to medical and general audiences are well known for her use of dramatic stories and avoidance of PowerPoint. <laughs> her writings have appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, the New England Journal of Medicine, the Lancet, and on CNN.com and National Public Radio. She writes about medicine and the doctor-patient connection for the New York Times and other publications. Her essays have been selected by Stephen J. Gould, Oliver Sacks, and Susan Orlean for Best American Essays, twice, and Best American Science Writing. She is the recipient of the John P. McGovern Award from the American Medical Writers Association for Preeminent Contributions Preeminent Contributions to Medical Communication. And last but not least, she is the author of a collection of books about the world of medicine. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ofri. Thank you, Kim. It's great to be here. What a great introduction. Um, I have so many questions for you. Um, it's a little bit <laughs> it's a little bit hard um, to know where to start. But Dr. Ofer, you have said that you believe communication is by far the doctor's most important and effective diagnostic tool. What brought you to that belief? Well, well, one thing is I, I'm an internist by trade, so most of my work is done by talking and the physical exam. And I think in the beginning, as a you know a medical student, I was really wowed by technology and all that it could do. But as I went along, I realized that what the patient says, the patient's story, is the primary data. And everything else we do, the MRI, blood tests, you know, the endoscopies, those are all confirmatory. And if you take a good history, you can really make the diagnosis 80 to 90% of the time. And, and especially if you look at our older uh, professors and clinicians who've had more experience with less technology behind them, we watched our diagnostic wizardry in just in talking with the patient. Um, 
And each time I go into the exam room, I, that's reinforced. So you, you've also described listening really as a therapeutic tool. And again, I think these are kind of maybe new, new phrases new use of language for folks to get their, their arms around. It's, you know, we wouldn't think of listening as a therapeutic tool, but how can listening be therapeutic? How can it be a form of therapy? Well, for, for many people or many patients, they've never told their story. So this could be the first time they've told it. And sometimes just the act of telling the story in and of itself makes people feel better. And I, I, I found that patients countless times, when they finally had the moment to unload everything, now some of that might be psychological, but some might also be physiological. That people's cortisol level goes down, their adrenaline levels go down, probably their endorphin levels rise as well. So just the act of speaking and telling the story in and of itself is beneficial. If you look back for millennia, which doctors shame in healers of all stripes, and of course doctors before we had any effective medications, listening and talking is largely what we did, and in many cases it was remarkably effective. So I have another quote for you because we like quotes here on the show. <laughs> um, Eugene O'Neill said, God gave us mouths that close and ears that don't. <laughs> and that, I think that's a good one. Um, but you also argue that doctors should listen with their eyes. How, how can a person listen with their eyes? Well, well, one thing, if you've gone into a modern doctor's office lately, it's, you know, the doctor, the patient, and the computer, right? There's three people in the room or three things in the room, <laughs> and the computer tends to dominate the attention of the doctor. So for starters, doctors have sort of lost the focus on the patient. So our listening is so much more effective if we're making eye contact, both because we're listening better, but also because the other person tells their story better. There's a great body of research by uh, Janet Bavellis in, in British Columbia about how listeners are really co-narrators that the more effective you are in listening, the better the story is. And when listeners are distracted, and she said at various, you know, ingenious little techniques for that, the storyteller, the speaker, their story falls apart. So we as the listener, in this case the physician, can help the patient tell a better story with more effective listening. So let's let's stick with that ideas of the, the idea of the computers and the and the and, and the tablets and you know these have certainly come, become as standard as a as a stethoscope in a doctor's office um, you know being sent for CAT scans MRIs ha- has become routine let's just take a couple minutes to talk about technology is technology a help or a hindrance um, to both. the yeah, yeah, and, and especially as it relates to your ability to communicate well with each other, the doctor and the patient. Sure, and, and I, I, listen, I never want to be without my technology. I love having PET scans and MRIs. I, um, I'm not a Luddite by any stretch of the imagination, but they don't substitute for medical diagnosis. They assist in medical diagnosis, and I think we're often seduced by this great technology. And even the electronic medical record, well, we can, we, you know, we can do anything on the, on, on the computer, but often that detracts from the getting of the history. So the patient will start out with one concern and will quickly dive into ordering tests and looking things up and sending patients for referrals because it's so easy to do that the patient's never had a chance to, to you know, finish their story. On the other hand, it's so helpful to have an electronic medical record. Right? You can, the chart isn't lost in you know, the surgeon's you know, office and the, and the x-ray isn't wandering somewhere in the hospital. It's all centralized, and that's very valuable. To, I mean, in the old days, hunting for a chart was half the job of seeing a new patient. So there are great things that the electronic medical record can do, 
but it also can hinder us by taking our eyes off the patient and also um, kind of fractionating our focus into a million little things because there's so many moving parts to the EMR. And do you think that part of it is also when it comes to the, the EMR in particular, and again, for our listeners, EMR is electronic medical record, sometimes called EHR, electronic health record. Um, and really, it's the idea that we're putting all of these medical records into the digital world instead of writing notes onto charts. Um, do you think that in some ways, it's just we're now in this period of sort of a learning curve um, around the use of this technology and that it will become sort of as usual and as embedded, you know, as a stethoscope in the office. I mean, I know I was in a doctor at a doctor's office recently and she was so frustrated. She was apologizing for continuing to look at the computer. She said, because I haven't really been, had good training. You know, we have a new EHR. I haven't really been trained well in it. And so I'm just trying to navigate through it while I'm trying to listen to you at the same time. But will that become, you know, will we kind of overcome that learning curve and it will become a normal part of the medical visit? Well, I, yes and no. I hate to say that for a lot of questions. Yeah. But, yes, yeah, so when we first start out, of course, it's, it's very difficult. But I also think that, you know, every time the administration wants to add a new mandate onto the, you know, a new required uh, rule, they can just add it onto the EMR. It's very easy. Make a required field so you, the doctor can't close the visit until they add on one more field. And the problem is it's very easy to keep doing that. Mm. Um, and so, for example, I had clinics this morning, and for each mm-hmm. patient I saw, I had to make sure I answered questions about depression, domestic violence, language, uh, barriers to learning, um, educational uh, materials that I was handing out, asthma action plan, HIV testing, smoking. Mm-hmm. Now, they're all good and important things, but they keep right. adding more and more and more. And sometimes it becomes so many that how, you know, it's hard to get to the meat of the visit. And, of course, there are some ridiculous ones that are added on as well, but it's very easy to, to plug more things on. So um, we just have to be really careful with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know a lot of those things are required for, you know, certification and accreditation and funding. And so it's, you know, I know there's always right. a reason. And, so they're, and they're important. Uh-huh. I, I don't I want to sure. do I do want to answer the question about domestic violence, but sometimes every single time, maybe it's not always appropriate at every single visit. And, um, but, of course, it's required. So then you're either going to have to lie, which no one wants to do either, but sometimes it's not always practical to ask every one of those questions every single visit. Yeah, underst- understood. I think that makes sense. Um, Dr. Ofri, we've got, uh, I don't know, maybe about three minutes until our break. Let's just take a minute to dive in. Uh, my understanding uh, is that one of the first things learned in medical school is how to take a medical history. What is that and why is that so important? So the medical history is eliciting the story from the patient. And the students are taught a very um, uh, rigorous way of doing it. And there's an order. So you ask what's the chief complaint, the first thing the patient has to say, what brings them here, and the history of the present illness, you know, how the story came to be, the past medical history, past surgical, the social history. Um, and it's very helpful in learning that because it helps you cover all the bases. Um, on the other hand, it can become overly rigid. In, in, for example, we label the, the patient's initial issue as the chief complaint. So we've already kind of labeled the patients as complainers, and so maybe it doesn't quite put them in the, in the most productive <laughs> light there. Um, but it also tends to promote medical ease, you know, where uh, students will say, you know, uh, the patient denied having short of breath. They admitted to getting a mammogram, you know, last mm-hmm. week. 
And although that language is taught to them to indicate they've asked and the patient said yes or no, it sounds kind of like a, you know, a B-movie courtroom drama. I try to tell the patient, you know, the, the, the patient said they had a mammogram. If they said they have a cough, they've got a cough. I mean, there's no other objective mm-hmm. way of, you know, measuring that. You know, the patient's words are the objective data. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I know that... Um First of all, a lot of patients joke that they're called patients, and because you have to have a lot of patients <laughs> sometimes <laughs> when you're sure. uh, when you're navigating the uh, when you're navigating the medical system. But um, but yeah, I know a lot of our patients. And I know we'll get into this. Really express frustration at not having enough time, you know, with their doctors to really give the full history, ask the you know ask the appropriate questions. But just before we get to our break here, just quickly, Doctor Ofri, how is that taking of the medical history? you know, taught? And have you seen that instruction change over time to adapt to some of the things that you're describing? Well, it's taught in a very standard way. You know, here's a list of things you have to ask. And mm-hmm. again, it's good to start out the way so the students learn all of it. But I think what we need to do is help the students adapt to the reality of medicine. Again, not every question, every single time. Um, it's changing a bit as, again, technology comes in. But I think we have some ways to go in reminding our students about the listening part of the history is as important as the asking questions part of the history. Mm-hmm. What do you mean when you say that? Well, because we, we tell the students, here's things to ask. We don't talk to them much about how to listen and how mm-hmm. to frame an answer and how to catch what's going on, because often the patients will say something, but there might be a layer of meaning underneath. And mm-hmm. if you just take the words at face value, you may have missed mm-hmm. the deeper meaning. So to be really aware of, of when answers might have multiple layers, to ask back again, maybe to rephrase what the patient has said, reflect back, all these parts of the little listening end that again, right. can help the patient most accurately um, get their information out to the doctor. Got it. Got it. Uh, we have a lot more to talk about with uh, Dr. Danielle Ofri. She's a physician at Bellevue Hospital. Uh, she has just written a book called What Patients Say, what doctors hear about patient-physician communication. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're going to take a quick break. We will be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. 
Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by AstraZeneca and Lilly Oncology. I'm Kim Tibaldo, and with us today is Dr. Danielle Ofri, author of the recently released book, What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear. Dr. Ofri is an internist at Bellevue Hospital, an associate professor of medicine at New York University. Her writings uh, have appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, the New England Journal of Medicine, the Lancet on CNN.com, and on National Public Radio. She writes about medicine and the doctor-patient connection for the New York Times and other uh, uh, publications. I know, uh, Dr. Ofri, that one of the things that, that, that you've worked on a very uh, sort of innovative uh, project that at, that at Bellevue, uh, there is now the Bellevue Literary Review, which you uh, edit. Not really used to hearing about a literary review coming from a hospital. Tell us about what that is. Well, we started, this is now 16 years ago, um, and this came out of, in fact, working with medical students. You know, this, we talked about the history that, that medical students do, and they were handing these in to me, and they're, you know, they're all kind of the same. And after the first 50 or 60, they get a little dry to read. So I'd ask students, can you just kind of write the patient's story? What was it like to have their illness? And the students began handing in these wonderful essays. And so we thought about, should we make a, like an in-house publication? But we decided there's probably a, a larger, you know, public interest in talking about health and healing and using the creative perspective. So we founded the Bellevue Literary Review, opened it up to the general public, and we quickly were swamped with a thousand submissions. These people have a mm. lot to say, not just say doctors or you know, nurses, but anyone who's had experience with the medical system, which is really just about everyone. Yeah. And so now we publish a journal twice a year with short stories, essays, and a lot of poetry in which people look, you know, at the vulnerability that illness engenders, and I, and I think that vulnerability has a lot in common with sources of creativity. And so we are now getting 4,000 submissions a year 
Um, and, and so we invite people to take a look at our website, which is the Bellevue Literary Review. Um, we have public readings. We have filmed actors reading uh, poetry. We publish study guides for, for teaching use. But it's a really wonderful, very accessible literary journal. Wow. Fantastic. So innovative. I, uh, uh, I love that. I love that. So unique in the space. Um, I want to get to your, to your book, Dr. Ofri, what patients say, what doctors hear. Um, talk a little bit about what inspired you to write that, to write that book, what really brought you to that project. So the book I wrote before this is called What Doctors Feel, How Emotions Affect the Practice of Medicine. And I was, in researching that book, was interested in writing about doctors and patients as friends. And so I hunted on the Internet, and I found a doctor's blog about being friends with a patient. So I contacted her. When I interviewed her, she told me about a patient for whom she had a lot of uh, challenges in taking care. The two of them disagreed on treatment a lot. Um, and when I read more of the doctor's blog, I saw comments from someone who looked like that patient. In any case, the patient gave permission for me to interview her, and she told a completely different story. Mm. And that fascinated me. And it wasn't as though one was right and one was wrong. Both were very intelligent, thoughtful, self-critical people. And yet, it was almost like if you imagine a movie scene and two movie cameras at different angles taking completely different you know, views of the same event. And honestly, sometimes I felt like two different movies altogether because they saw it so differently. I thought that would make a great kernel of a book. And it ended up not going into that first book on emotions. It became the centerpiece of this book, uh, What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear. So I know in the book you interview doctors and patients in pairs, sort of almost sort of as you're, um, you know, as you're describing to us. So, so, you know, why was that important to you, and how did you sort of document the the different perspectives? Well, because because of this experience of seeing how differently two people, you know, equally intelligent and and and, and really committed, you know, that the patient described as being in a rowboat and we're each rowing in the opposite direction. I thought it'd be very important to get you know, two sides of the story. It actually turned out to be harder than I expected. Um, you know, if, if a doctor-patient relationship goes very well, there's not much to write about. But if it doesn't go well, often one party doesn't want to talk. So it was a, quite a bit more challenging. I was able to find a few, and it was very, it was always illuminating because they really saw things so differently. And when they kind of were able to come together on that, mm-hmm. they really learned a lot from each other. Um, so I, I and I think about that a lot when I'm with my patients. Am I missing? I see it. I think I'm being objective, but I recognize that I'm probably not as objective as I think I am. And to remember that they're seeing it completely, possibly completely differently than I am. So I know in the book you do share some of your own experiences, and um, frankly, you, you know, you were very open about some of these experiences. Maybe not always putting you in the best uh, uh, in the best light, which maybe was taking a little bit of a a little bit of a risk, but I was wondering if you might share one of those stories from the book that was through, you know, for, for you, a personal experience, but really illuminating. Oh, my gosh, of which there are many. Um, so I had a patient um, who, and I don't know if it's in this book or the last book, but I think it does relate to communication, who, who came in with many, many things on her mind. And, we, you know, as we call it, a lot of, quote, complaints. And you're the kind of person of 30 or 40 or 50 things to talk about, which can be very overwhelming. Yeah. And uh, she was very stressed in her life, and she was having, you know, pains in her toes and in her gums and in her chest and in her hair and, you know, everywhere. And she had a demanding mother, and she was smoking because of the stress, and her job was terrible, and her son wasn't doing well. And, um, 
And, and basically, when I examined her, and she had a normal EKG, I thought this was distress. I reassured her. Um, and a few days later, I got a call from the emergency room that she had a blood clot in her lungs, in fact, on both sides. And I was dumbstruck. And I went back to our note from a few days ago. In fact, she had mentioned chest pain and shortness of breath. But they were buried in a hundred other things that, that made me start to discount it. Mm. And I didn't really, and I missed a really life-threatening illness. She could have died, and of course she has to be on lifelong blood thinners because of that. And I wondered about how I missed it. Did I, you know, did simply seeing so many complaints, did she fall into the classic, you know, worried, well, middle-aged woman that I, you know, didn't give as much merit to that? Um, and, you know, could I have done this? differently, uh, because it really was, you know, a, a near disaster that, that that could have been. And so I think about that now. I mean, I, I apologize to her. I felt terrible that I had, she was sitting there. As we were speaking, these blood clots are building up in her lungs. And I'm saying, you know, you need to relax and do some yoga, and, and which advice would be good in other situations, but I was, you know, missing what was really going on. Do, do do they ever? It's interesting to me that you said that you apologized to her. Is there anybody that ever tells you not to apologize to a patient because it's somehow an admission of guilt or somehow implies some kind of liability? I know that doctors are so bound by so many legal questions these days. You know, how how, how does that impact that? Well, that's sort of the going word in the street. You know, if you say anything, you're going to you know incriminate yourself. But in yeah. fact, research shows that the more doctors own up and apologize, the less likely patients are to sue. Because I think mm-hmm. that patients recognize that mistakes happen. Um, there was, in fact, one study that showed that patients for whom their doctors told them of the error were less likely to want to switch doctors because they felt like, okay, now I've got a doctor I can trust. Now I know right. if something happens, so I'd rather keep this doctor. Um, they're much more understanding. And, and, in fact, if you look at the data on lawsuits, the majority of lawsuits are not actually about, you know, malpractice of medicine. They're about communication. They're about mm-hmm. patients who are not getting information, are frustrated in, in the process much more than the error itself. I think people recognize error. Um, and you're right, she, she could have sued me. That, that's true. Um, but I felt, I mean, just ethically I, and personally, I felt terrible. This thing had, you know, she was sitting in a doctor's office with this going on, and I didn't catch it. Now, maybe it wasn't catchable. I mean, that's, that's a possibility, too. There's no way to prove that. But nevertheless... I felt the need to at least acknowledge that you know mm. she had this, and I didn't see it. And she was incredibly understanding, um, mm. more than I expected her to be. And and and, and that mm-hmm. forgiveness meant a lot for me because I have to live with this. And it was helpful to have her response at the very least, and her to know that, you know, I understood that this wasn't the way I'd li- I'd really like it to be. I thought that her the care could have been it could have been different. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Effrey, we're coming up in a couple minutes on our on our next break here, but I just want to ask you about a statistic uh, that I read. It said that on average, doctors interrupt patients 12 seconds from the time the patient starts speaking. 12 seconds. How how can that be? Is that is that uh, is that really possible? Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, the patient will say, you know, I have this pain in my stomach, and we'll jump in because we want to be detectives. Oh, when did it start? When does it come on? When does it go away? What makes it worse? Makes it better? We pepper them with questions because we're not trying to be rude, but we want to figure it out. You know, we, we love the diagnosis chase. But unfortunately, if the patient had a second thing to say, we never get to that. So, yeah. um, 
that's another sort of lesson for doctors. If we can just sort of zip it up for a few minutes and let the patient talk, they can get what they need to get out on the table, I think we're, we're more likely to get a better diagnosis and less likely to make a medical error or misdiagnosis if we let the patient talk a little bit more. That's, it. That's interesting. I think another part of another study I saw that said that if you let the patient go, they'll talk, actually talk for about 90 seconds if they're not. Well, that's they're I, not. I once asked my colleagues, how long do you think patients would speak if we just let them go? And like, oh, we could never do that. They'd talk forever, 10, 20, 30 minutes. But this one study, actually, when they timed it, it was about 90 seconds. Um, but it was a Swiss study. So you know the Swiss. They're really <laughs> diplomatic and precise, and maybe they're not like the the Americans who love to gas. So I thought, okay, I'll try this myself. So I did it in my clinic. And surprisingly, most of the patients were, you know, under two minutes. I was really mm. shocked. Wow. That's, it's, a, it's, re- it's really fat, fascinating. Those statistics, statistics to me actually are, uh, you know, are very, very fascinating. Um, we, uh, we have a lot more to talk about uh, with Dr. Danielle Ofrey. She's a, a physician at Bellevue Hospital and associate professor of medicine at New York University. She's also uh, the uh, editor of the Bellevue Literary Review, um, which is a literary review focused on really health and wellness and healing, uh, a pretty original project. And she's just written a book called What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo. We're going to take a quick break here. We have a lot more to talk about with Dr. Ofri and also a lot more listening to do as she uh, enlightens us about these topics. So we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, 
visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Insight Corporation, NovoCure, and Taiho Oncology. I'm Kim Tebaldo, and our guest today is Dr. and author Danielle Ofri. We've been talking to Dr. Ofri about her new book, What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear. In addition to her clinical work, she's the author of a collection of books about the world of medicine, including Incidental Findings and Medicine in Translation. Uh, in the last segment, Dr. Ofri, we were talking about the fact that doctors on average interrupt patients about 12 seconds into uh, the time that the patients start speaking. And there was a Swiss study that said if you... Uh, let them go. They'll go for about 90 seconds or so. And you said you sort of tested this yourself. And usually the first sort of opening comments from the patient are under uh, under two minutes. I'm imagining that there are some exceptions to that rule. <laughs> are there well, some examples where you let the patient go yeah. and uh, maybe regret it a little bit? <laughs> yes, there are. So, so I was doing this little study in my own clinic of timing each patient. And most were, were quite, you know, succinct. But then came a patient um, who has lots to say. And she, like the other patient I mentioned, has many, many complaints. And in a similar situation, stressful job, elderly parents to care for, children to care for, lots of aches and pains. I thought, oh, boy, this patient's really going to sink me. Mm. I realized that if I, you know, let her, you know, if I don't, if I don't let her talk, then I'll, I'll flaw my data. So I let her speak, and she just went on. Each time she said, you know, this hurts, I would say anything else, and there always was. I think she had a list of, you know, 30 or 40 things, and we just kept going and going. I tried not to look at the clock, and it felt like forever, and I just kept a list of what she was saying. When she finally, truly, absolutely came to the end of all she had to say, I leaned over and checked, and it was actually just a little more than four minutes. Mm. I thought it had been 15, 20 minutes. Wow. The most amazing thing is what she said afterwards. She said, just saying all this has made me feel better. Mm. And, you know, I'd heard about that, but I'd never heard a patient legitimately say that. And I think because patients like her with many, many things going on um, often feel like they're getting walls put up around them because doctors try to shut them up as expeditiously as possible for fear of, like, more unsolvable complaints. So they're used to being blocked and, and so maybe have this compulsion to tell more and tell harder. And so the idea of not having a wall up and just 
letting it go, in fact, decreased her stress levels a lot. Um, mm. And what was most interesting to me is that it actually made me feel better because I looked at the list that we made. It mm. was a long list, but it was finite. It didn't seem like mm-hmm. it didn't go on forever, which is what it always felt like to me. And the idea that it was finite, I think, also relaxed my anxiety level. And then we know it's a list. We can tackle three today, four next time, but it wasn't a never-ending pit. And so, uh, so even for the patients who seem like they want to talk forever, in fact, this technique can help a lot for both the doctor and the patient. Mm. You know, Dr. Ofri, at the Cancer Support Community, we have a program called Open to Options, which is a program that helps patients with decision making. And it helps, it's just what you're describing. It helps patients, you know, with our trained, you know, therapists, it helps them create a question list and really insert their own preferences and values into the decision making process, which doesn't always happen, you know, in the medical conversation. And I remember there was one woman who, you know, she she was on the phone with one of our therapists and she said, well, how long do I have? And the therapist said, as long as you want. No, but I mean, how long do I have to be on the phone with you? To ma-? And the therapist said, as long as you want. She said, wow, that's the first time anybody ever said that to me, you know, in dealing with my illness. And uh, so I think you're right. I mean, just the, 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 the idea, of, I mean, everybody wants to be heard, right? So just the idea of being heard is what you're saying really has therapeutic value, doesn't it? Oh, my God. I, I, in my book, I interview a woman named Corrine Jansen, who was a chief listening officer of a hospital. Brilliant mm. idea from the Netherlands. And mm. I could see why they hired her because as we sat and spoke, we had a, this face-to-face conversation, complete eye contact for about an hour. And, you know, it's a very rare experience to be listened to, kind of full frontal listening with no competing agendas. No one's on their phone. No one's thinking about the baseball game or about dinner. Just listening straight on. It was the most um, energizing experience I've had in a long time. And her questions reflected that she was really listening deeply to what I was saying. She caught the content. She thought about it. And that experience, it was like I just had a massage. I felt so good afterward, even though we were just having a conversation. The idea of being listened to in and of itself has therapeutic benefit. Has therapeutic value. It's almost like, it's almost like mindful listening. Like I know we teach mindful meditation, mindfulness meditation, how to be in the moment. It's almost like my, uh, the idea of mindful listening really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Dr. Ofri, I, I, I just am so impressed. You have so many uh, writing credentials um, in your bio. Did you always have literary aspirations? I mean, if I interviewed your parents, would they say, oh, yeah, she was the writing in the literary club. She was the head of the paper, writing creative stories. You know, is this something that's in your DNA? Actually, no, I was a, I was a straight science major all, all the way. Although I love <laughs> writing, and I have such a distinct recollection of my first grade teacher teaching us how to make a book and to write written and illustrated by and put your name and take credit for your work. Um, and in fact, I'll tell you, once I started publishing books, I wanted to track down my first grade teacher. It took me years, and I finally tracked her down somewhere around my third or fourth book. I found her. I visited her in California, invited her to one of my talks, and I wrote on the board, written and illustrated by, and discussed the power of those words. And I asked her to stand up and get a round of applause for all these oh. doctors in the room who all got their start from their first grade teacher, from the person who taught them Mm. to read and to write, these two most powerful tools that we'll ever get in our lives. Wow, that's very touching. That's a beautiful story. Um, So, Dr. Ofri, we have a lot of patients who listen to uh, our show, as you can imagine, patients and families dealing with with cancer. Can Can you describe what good communication looks like? What, what, uh, 
you know, what recommendations do you have to doctors? And then we can flip and talk about recommendations that we have for patients as they're preparing for appointments. Well, one thing that, that doctors all say, and rightly so, is we have no time. And it's true. If visits mm-hmm. have gotten shorter, there's more to do in the visit. The, the electronic medical record demands a lot from the doctor. So it is very, and patients are sicker now than they were 20 years ago. Right? They're living with more chronic illnesses and many medications. So it's very hard. But I talked, and I also bring up the patient I just mentioned, how giving the patient a few minutes to talk, even though it feels like it's wasting time, quote, wasting time, it's actually remarkably efficient. To give the patient even two minutes of undivided attention will pay back in spades. One is that you'll decrease the anxiety of the patient for trying to, you know, add more and more, as we said before. But you will have gained this strong bond. So what I often will say, I'll listen to the patient for the first minute or two, and then I'll say, do you mind if I take notes while you write? I don't want to miss what you say. And then I've acknowledged the computer as a tool that, you know, for your benefit and my benefit needs. You know, it's a necessary evil. We all know that. But after I've listened for the first minute or two, that helps a lot. Then the computer isn't as much of an intrusion um, as it was in the beginning. And the second bit of advice to doctors is the, uh, that I have is to use the physical exam as another place of communication. And I find so often that when we leave the desk and go to the exam table, that's when a lot of the communication really takes place because now there's no technology between us, just two human beings touching and talking um, without any electronics between us, which is a very rare thing these days. And countless times, that's when the patient tells us really on their mind, when I'm listening to their lungs or feeling their abdomen. They may remember the cough or they may now feel comfortable telling us things that weren't comfortable like... Um, you know, a sexual disorder or an eating disorder or domestic violence, often these things come out over the exam table. So I recommend to doctors to use the physical exam as another, you know, time for communication. And we've um, heard patients or, say sometimes, sometimes they actually would prefer talking when they're not making direct eye contact with the doctor, particularly yes. maybe if it's a more embarrassing subject or, you know, one that's a little hard to look somebody right. in the face. So maybe while you're listening to them or, you know, Mm-hmm. Checking them and not having that direct eye contact is a more comfortable time for the patient to share a little yes. more. Is that sometimes true? Yes, ab- absolutely. And my advice for patients, you know, one thing that I mentioned as chief listening officer, one thing she does now as a consultant, and she works with mainly oncology patients, is she helps them craft a three-minute narrative. Now, because some patients will, will come in with 600 pages of a chart. They will just read this or mm-hmm. come in with a 30-minute you know, oration about their illness. But that, of course, isn't unfortunately not practical in today's time, but to help a patient come up with a succinct narrative that includes, you know, the key points, um, you know, thorough but not too long, recognize, you you know, there's not unlimited time, unfortunately. So think about what you want to get out of the visit. Again, if you come with a list of 50 questions, by definition, it will be superficial. You can't do 50 Mm -hmm. things in depth. So pick Mm -hmm. the one or two important things. Find out how you can get in touch later for some of the others. Recognize that some may have to get accomplished in the next visit. Um, but you may also want to ask the doctor what they think is the most important thing because they may, may pick something out of that list that you haven't thought of as very important. So I often tell patients, let's pick three things today. You pick two, I'll pick one. And those mm-hmm. will be the three we'll focus on today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the things I know in oncology that, that we find oftentimes there's a real misunderstanding between the patient and the doctor about the goals of therapy and that the patient that the, the doctor will use terms like metastatic, for example, but then let's talk about your treatment. So patients think they're going to be cured from cancer, 
Um, and, and so they re- don't really understand that the goal of therapy would not necessarily be cure, but there are other goals, you know, goals to the therapy. Is that, do you think sort of clarifying that with the doctor is important? What are the goals? And also, again, as I said before, bringing your own preferences and values into the conversation. Absolutely. I also, I mean, I, I recommend to doctors, once we've told either a big diagnosis or a, a complex medical plan, is aspect the patient, you know, to make sure the patient understands what is you've just said? Because you may not realize, <clears throat> doctors often recognize when they use medical jargon. So, or, you know, I'll often say before I go forward, what do you understand so far about your illness? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there'll be, you know, very large misconceptions that then we can clear up then. Because, again, often the, the terminology is very difficult to, right. um, you know, to, to navigate. But then I encourage the patients to, to be able to stop to say midway, you know, wait a second, I don't quite get what you're saying. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Is this... Yeah. Curable illness, you know what? You know what? What, sh- what should I expect to get from this? You know, yeah. what is the expectation going to be a helpful thing? Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, we're getting to a break right now. We have so much more to talk about with Dr. Danielle Ofri. We're talking about her book, "What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear." Um, we have uh, a lot more to dive in. We have one more segment. We have a lot more to dive in on with you, Dr. Ofri. In the last segment, we're just going to take a quick break. Um, don't go away. We will be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts, and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the AZI Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Bristol-Myers Squibb. Celgene Corporation, EMD Serono, and Takeda Oncology. I'm Kim Tibaldo from the Cancer Support Community. We've been having a great conversation today with Dr. Danielle Ofri. She's a physician at Bellevue Hospital and Associate Professor of Medicine uh, at NYU. Uh, Dr. Ofri, I have a good friend who's a successful and respected attorney, and early in his career, he sort of took a philosophical stand that he would never speak legalese to his clients, and, and he, had trained, he had really trained his associate um, attorneys the same way. Um, he tell them we're practicing law in one language, and that is English. Um, I I feel like there's like a similar approach to medicalese. As I was saying, you know, earlier, folks, you know, maybe the average person doesn't understand what terms like metastatic mean. Um, you know, is the is the use of of language, and again, that sort of talk back from the patients to confirm, you know, understanding. Talk to us about that and the importance of that. I think it's critical. There's so many words that we forget are not English. We doctors forget. Like in, med, in internal medicine, the word MI, the initials MI, which stand for myocardial infarction, which is a heart attack. We say MI like it's a regular word, and the truth is many mm. people don't know what an MI is, and we often forget, and patients will have no idea they just had a heart attack. So um, we need to be cognizant, to be aware of that. And, and sometimes there are even words that sound like English but really aren't, and my favorite one is the word decompensated. And when someone has uh, heart failure, for example, their heart isn't uh, pumping so well, um, when things are compensated, it's, you know, it's keeping the fluid going in the right direction. When it's decompensated, the fluid backs up into the lungs and the liver. And we forget that decompensated, you know, it's not a real word. And I remember once I was uh, describing to friends going on an airplane. I had two toddlers and an infant, and the plane was delayed. We were stuck on the tarmac for three or four hours, and my oh. children decompensated. Well, I, and I said, that's say. not a word. <laughs> I said, yes, it is. Look it up. And, of course, I was wrong. It's not a word. It should be a word because I think it really describes toddlers on an airplane. But the idea that so much of the language that we use is not what people in the real world use. And so we think we um, have to ask a lot, you know, is this making sense? Can I ask you what you understand? You know, tell me what you know so far. Have I missed anything? To give patients a chance to let us know when we've overlooked that we've uh, been using medical ease. Mm-hmm. And I frankly think that some folks would have a lot more colorful language to describe toddlers on an airplane than decompensated. But this is a family show, so we're we're going to okay. keep it clean. <laughs> um, Dr. Free, the our research shows at Cancer Support Community that one of the things that patients want so much is more time um, 
with their doctor. I imagine this is true not only with cancer patients, but with any you know condition. And you advocate so strongly for good communication between doctors and patients. Why isn't this happening? Is it is it is it is it reimbursement? Is it an environmental challenge? Is it that there are more doctors than we can keep up with? I mean, what, what's going wrong that we can't get this done? I think it's all of the above. And let me first say that I think doctors would like that too. I think mm-hmm. if you ask any doctor, they would love to spend an hour with a patient. It would make life so much easier. But you're right. You know, if you're in a private practice, you wouldn't be able to keep the electricity bills paid if you, you know, spent an hour with a patient, you know, and saw seven patients a day. It just the economics don't work. Now, partly mm-hmm. it's because of the system that we we you know live in. Our insurance system reimburses preferentially for procedures. So mm-hmm. if you you know use a scalpel and cut open someone's body or put a tube in an orifice, you can bill for a lot of money. Um, but if you sit and spend 15 minutes or 20 minutes talking about a healthy diet. That's worth nothing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It, it lends ourselves or presses the system to emphasize procedures and tests over, over talking. It doesn't see the value, you know, in the talking part of medicine. But, of course, if you think about most illnesses, even things that require surgery or procedures, the talking part is really the, the key to that. So it would be nice if, if that were, you know, reimbursed on par with a, an MRI or a CAT scan. Yeah, I yeah, I mean it just seems like a big mountain to climb to um to it get does, to but a, to... I I think I feel like we're we're making baby steps. Mm. You know, in in that direction and recognizing I think the whole push of the Affordable Care Act um mm-hmm. you know, irrespective of where it goes and I personally hope that it stays, but it it began to push primary care medicine more toward the center um mm-hmm. as opposed to being in the periphery and leaving the specialties in the center. Mm-hmm. And again, historically, that comes from how our health insurance came to be. It was really set by the American Medical Association, which at the time was predominated by specialists. And so mm-hmm. that's how our insurance came to be, to reimburse much more for a procedure than a conversation. But I think the recognition that, that keeping people healthy requires talking about how mm-hmm. you eat, how you exercise, what you do in your daily life, much more than the procedures that we do. And so... Um, but it's, we're still a long way from, from, you know, getting parity. I mean, mm-hmm. why is it that surgeons are paid much more than internists? Is what they do harder? I don't think mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But that's historically how it goes. So it's, you know, you don't get a lot of money sitting around talking about how best to structure your diet or how to lower your stress levels, even though those can have powerful effects on overall health and outcomes. Right, because the reimbursement system, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we essentially, you could you could argue that we, we pay for what we value, right? So, I mean, even you could argue around prevention and preventative care, right? We don't have good preventative care, and, and you're, you know, as you're suggesting, because the reimbursement's not, not great for that, right? But in fact, when I finish a visit, it's very hard to bill for a healthy patient. Mm-hmm. Well, we you have to find a problem. But some mm-hmm. patients don't have a problem, and that's why we wouldn't want to keep them not having problems. But yet the billing system is set up. There must be a problem. And, mm-hmm. and so already you can see the issue. We can't sit, we, the model does work in pediatrics. There is the idea of the well-child visit at three mm-hmm. months, at six months, at one year. We have that in, but once you're an adult, forget it. There's no well-visit model, and so we can't bill for that. We can only bill for when you're sick. Right, right. right. Dr. Effie, we're getting to the end of the show, and I want to make sure that our listeners can, can A, find your book. So I want to just you know mention the name again and Let's direct them to that. And then I also know you have an e-newsletter that folks can sign up for. So give us some direction about where folks can get the book and then how they can sign up for the e-newsletter. 
So, I mean, the book is in, should be in all bookstores and, you know, online booksellers as well. It's available mm-hmm. in the e-reader editions as well as the hard copy and also the, um, the books on tape version for those who like to listen while they're jogging or walking the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, so my let's website just say, is, I just want to just let our listeners know, it's called What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear, Dr. Danielle Ofri, and that's O-F-R-I. So, again, if folks want to track down that book and then tell us about the newsletter. So I send out a newsletter about once a month with interesting articles um, things that I'm writing, things that other people write in the area of communication, doctor-patient connection. Um, and I keep all my articles on my website, danielleofree.com. And there's an e-newsletter sign-up. And so I invite you to you know, come join us. And no commercial content, just uh, you know, interesting articles and things to read. And that's free? The newsletter is free? Yes, oh, of course. Great. And is there a blog or a place that people can comment or leave notes? Or uh, There's a contact form. You can send me an email. I answer every single email. So... Send me, wow. send me a note. Good for you. Good for you. Boy, it's been such a pleasure uh, having you on the show, and I feel like we're so aligned with so many of the things that we talk about at the cancer uh, support community. We certainly talk about patient-physician communication. We talk about decision-making. We talk about how to be an educated and empowered patient and really work in partnership um, with your healthcare team and, and uh, you know, especially around a serious illness uh, like cancer. So it's such a pleasure uh, to have you on the show to learn about your work and, and to learn about the book and everything that you're uh, that you're doing. I just also want to remind our listeners um, about all of the great programs and services that we have at the Cancer Support Community. Uh, we have 47 affiliates around the country, uh, centers where you can walk into these centers and you'll find support groups, educational programs, nutrition, exercise, stress reduction. These programs are free of charge for people with all cancers at any stage of their, uh, of their disease and they're also available for the friends and family members and loved ones of uh, of people with cancer. Visit us at www.cancersupportcommunity.org or give us a call on our helpline. That number is 888-793-9355. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.